32 counties united by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, united Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Um, usually when my voice isn't gone, but today it is. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Thanks. For a gone voice. So we are smack bang in the middle of election season. And this is episode two of our four or five, maybe, part of season on the Northern Irish Assembly elections. If you didn't uh, listen in to know what a Northern Irish Assembly is, check out our first episode. Uh, With the North heading to the polls on the May 5th, we'll be talking to expert analysts, giving you constituency profiles, speaking to candidates beyond the usual heads you're used to listening to, digging into the issues that matter to people voting in the North. And most excitingly, it's the return of Andrea's facts. Excitingly for who we don't quite know yet. (laughs) (laughs) Last week, we talked to Susan McKay about the big picture, the significance of this election and unionism's big ideas or lack thereof. And in this second episode in the series, we're looking at an era of new candidates running in the North. The Others who are not necessarily tracing the same lines of identity as have been so dominant uh, in the past. Emma D'Souza, an independent candidate for Fermanagh and South Tyrone, will be joining us. This podcast runs on the fuel of Patreon subscriptions. Uh, Dear Patreons, you make this podcast keep going and we are incredibly grateful for your support. Thank you so much to everyone who has signed up to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. If you want to sign up and make this podcast happen for just three euro a month, please go right there. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. We are tremendously grateful for your support and we encourage you to sign up in bulk in your masses um, to keep us on the road. Thank you so much. And now it's time for State of the Nation. Hit me with the headlines, Andrea. Uh, you take the first one. Well, it's a been coming for a while. Um, all of the rumblings and, and rumours in various jurisdictions about how there was going to be these kind of coordinated crackdowns on the Kinahan cartel. And um, Tuesday morning, uh, the Department of Treasury uh, in the US and various US authorities basically announced uh, all these sanctions um, on various uh, members of the Kinahan cartel. They're also offering up to $5 million for information that leads to the arrest uh, or convictions of Daniel Kinahan, Christy Kinahan Sr., Christopher Jr., or the disruption of the Kinahan cartel. Simultaneously, there's a civil case, there's a civil case being taken in California uh, with regards to um, the poaching of a boxer that may also open up the accounts with regards to Daniel Kinahan's uh, alleged continuation in that business. There was the conviction of uh, Thomas Bomber Kavna recently in the UK, which also allowed Cab to move on a property linked to uh, Daniel Kinahan and also Jim Mansfield Jr., who is also currently in jail. Um separately to the other shenanigans that have been ongoing. Um, and so this is, really seems to be something major kind of happening. I know a lot of people have often been wondering if these people are being named as um, heading up criminal organizations and cartels uh, and if people kind of 
the authorities know vaguely at least where they live in terms of Dubai, uh, then why aren't they being brought in? And it does seem that the kind of uh, mechanisms are now moving at a very, very high level um, outside of, you know, your kind of pittance arrests that like large legal teams can kind of wrangle out of. So that's what's happening. Why is the US so interested? Well, I think that they're interested because uh, the Kinnan cartel is a transnational uh, drug cartel, right? So you're talking about, you know, really, really low, low estimates of around a billion uh, euro in revenue. So that would be like in profits and stuff uh, across South America, across Europe, and of course, um, uh, the Middle East as well, uh, along with Ireland and, and the UK. And I think that basically... There has been kind of workings going on with the US authorities and the Spanish and Irish and English authorities as well in terms of actually breaking up a cartel. Like I suppose we we perceive the Kinnahans to be, you know, an Irish phenomenon, but the cartel is a global entity. And so I think you're probably going to see the 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 work that's been happening between the Gardaí and the British police, Spanish police and the American authorities uh, over the past maybe five years start to come to fruition in these kind of ways. Kind of like in the film The Guard. Uh, yes, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> what else has been going on? Um, well, the airport is well and truly in absolute bits. Uh, the queues that have been going on have now been moved outside. So the you have to queue to get into the airport now to queue to get to drop your bags and then queue to get through security. You'd love that at five o'clock in the morning, wouldn't you? Nice toasty minus one degree. Love it. And then uh, the we actually, when we were going away, uh, got there earlier than the, they opened the bag drop. So we had to queue, wait around, even though we got there early, for the bag drop to open before we could then go into security. It's like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. And there's just a lot of questions that have to be asked and how, uh, like, I get that the the word on the street that they're putting out on Twitter from the DAA is like, well, we went from, from 100% to 5% and now we have to scale back up again. But, like, obviously, you knew the flights were being booked. You knew the people who were coming. I know it's hard to get staff. Everyone knows that. But, like, there had to have been some foresight in here. Like, think- how can this be a, have allowed to be happen? I just think it is the staff thing though. I mean, like, yeah, they probably should have been scaling up better. But when you actually have to do that and there's literally no staff, well, what, what can you do? Also, not just no staff, but they've shelled the contract so that it's not worth working. Not that it's not worth working there, but it's been very highly... Um, atomized in what is being offered. Mm, that's kind of happening across the board, isn't it? It's like this double bind of like entities or businesses that actually lost loads of money having to kind of formulate new ways to get staff that then aren't attractive to people who left various industries or need more money to pay their rent. Mm. You know, it's it's just such this like double and triple binds that's happening everywhere. Um, I was actually talking to somebody who's working in hospitality at the weekend and they were saying that they can't get staff they're in Kerry they can't get staff in their guest house um, primarily because of how the rental infrastructure has changed there 
because obviously people used to have like rent out rooms to people who are traveling for work or students or whatever. That has completely stopped because of the impact of Airbnb. So now there's no rental properties in the area. So basically people aren't moving in and therefore you can't, you can't then get staff who are local or who have just moved there. Mm. And so that they were putting it down to like, yes, of course, shortage of staff because people have left hospitality, but actually they're seeing it as this kind of impact of Airbnb and rural areas in Ireland that, you know, monopolize any, um, you know, properties basically and, and mean that people can't rent. So well done, basically. (laughs) Cool. Cool. Um, tourism first policies rather than the big belly live here. We did um, have a lovely, uh, another lovely moment for the government kind of bungling, just doing one of those like, you know, those videos where somebody like, tut, you know, these massive like fail videos or something, you know, and a whole house of cards comes crashing down repeatedly. Mm. I mean, we were talking about the Tony Holland job screw up, right? Yeah, correct. Um, go on. I just think it's, at at the outset, you're kind of like, that's a bit weird, isn't it? That you just have this job coming up in Trinity and then obviously all the salary things, but also the focus on Robert Watt, which I think is very welcome. I mean, obviously people seem to move on from how Robert Watt moved from one department to another with regards to that massive pay increase as well, um, which would have been signed off by the department he was moving from. And, uh, I do think, though, that it all all this speaks to like an increase in scrutiny and a desire for oversight and a focus on senior civil servants that that I don't think really existed as much in the past. And like this kind of, you know, Micheál Martin's just like on a rolling loop, lessons have to be learned rhetoric. It's just not going to cut it. Like you just can't do this kind of stuff. It's just wild. You know, you wouldn't be able to get away with it in in pretty much any other sector. So why is this the case in, yeah. in the public service? It did come out that his salary was going to be paid from, uh, from uh, what is the word where you get money? Fund. Fund. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be about uh, researching, uh, stopping uh, future um, things like COVID. Yeah, but like why, what are the mechanisms in place by which that can happen? Like what like criteria or where is it written down in any kind of guideline that somebody can go on a secondment and another random element of a department will pay them this really high salary and that, you know, a, a, a senior civil servant or a bunch of people will sign off on that when the minister doesn't even know what's happening in his department and is going out in the radio talking absolute nonsense Stephen Donnelly like magnetic poetry of buzzwords you know we're leading the way in an innovative dynamic fashion you know blah blah or whatever else he talks about you know it's just not good enough I think people are just like you know just it just people's standards are just much higher and they just won't take this kind of tomfoolery so that's the end of that uh, also, McEntee has promised, Tala McEntee has promised more Gardaí following um, a homophobic attack of Evan Summers, who's a, a young rugby player. Um, so more police on the street and it shouldn't have happened and all those things where obviously it has to speak to uh, the issue of homophobia running rife around the country. And street violence. And street in violence. In general, yeah. 
And finally, the French election is in full swing. Marie Le Pen ride, was riding high in the polls. In the first round, Macron came out at 28% and she came out at 23%. Uh, most of the other people were annihilated. Um, so it really does seem to be a two-horse uh, race. So we will look for the, forward to the results of the second round. Mm. Now it's time for Andrea's election news and facts. You've got a lot of numbers on your election facts this week, Andrea. Hit me. They, they call me the election Carol Vorderman. <laughs> uh, so there are 239 candidates running in this election. 90 of them will be elected to Stormont. I feel like that's a pretty good turnaround. Like you've kind of got two and a half chances. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Multiple thereof. Like it's pretty yeah, good yeah. ratio. Yeah, it is a good ratio. Uh, of those 239, 87 are women, which means the rest are men, more or other. Uh, Sinn Féin has the most candidates. They have 34. Uh, the DUP has 30. The UUP has 27. Alliance has 24. And the SDLP has 22. In total, there are 24 independent candidates running. 56% of Sinn Féin's candidates are women compared to just a quarter of the DUP's candidates. Well, that's not really a surprise, really. In terms of like, their thoughts on women, let's be honest. Uh, one of the reasons uh, we're doing this Northern Irish se- series is because this feels like a really important election, even though it's uh, unreported in the South. But what is likely to happen at this stage if polling is believed along with everything else, is that Sinn Féin will, for the first time, gain the most first preference votes in an election in the North and therefore be in line for the first minister position, which obviously means nothing. It's mostly symbolic because it is a shared position with the deputy first minister. However, the unionists are saying they won't engage if Sinn Féin get the first minister. So just make it one post. Oh, God, it's so annoying. Or and how, <laughs> how what, what are the polls? What's the latest poll? Sinn Féin is at 26%, DUP 19%, Alliance 16%, UUP 13%, SDLP 11 TUV 9 Greens are 2, Independence 2, and People Before Profit 2. God, that's a big difference there between seven points between Sinn Féin and DUP in the latest poll, isn't it? Like, that'll be hard to turn around. Yeah, it's like, I just wonder what's going to happen then. Well, (laughs) to talk to one of the candidates who's not within uh, that sphere, but is part of a a growing expanse of um, candidates on what could be quantified or called like a middle ground or other or different kind of candidates or newer of candidates. Uh, we're going to talk to Emma D'Souza, who's our guest today. So Emma D'Souza is an independent candidate running in the Fermanagh South Tyrone constituency. She's also a writer and political commentator, campaigner, Um, having brought a human rights case under the Good Friday Agreement to fruition by taking the British Home Office to court, um, along with her American husband for the right to be deemed uh, Irish under the agreement, which was that landmark case that had a large impact on immigration rules um, with regards to people in Northern Ireland being considered EU citizens for immigration purposes, if I've got that right. 
Um, Emma is part of a new wave of candidates, which is why we're talking to her on this episode, who are kind of rejecting the silos of old, um, the traditional divides that have existed in the North and instead are populating a space that is about independent voices thinking beyond those binaries. Uh, welcome, Emma. Is that an apt description? Do you agree with my characterization of your entire candidacy and purpose? Uh, absolutely. Spot on. You've got it perfectly there. So first of all, why are you running, Emma? Well, I was actually encouraged to consider running, um, particularly as an independent, by a good friend of mine uh, who was involved in the Women's Coalition. And when considering um, going forward, I, I, I came to the conclusion that I can contribute more good by running um, than not. Um, and if I want to encourage more young people, particularly young women, to see entering politics as a viable option and that they can do so without having to be part of party politics, then I see the need to lead by example. And that's what I'm trying to achieve with this um, election campaign. Um, and really part of that is uh, making a strong case for more independence in the Northern Ireland Assembly, which is why I'm working across the North with other independent candidates with similar values to try and make a positive case for a different type of politics. And now it really does feel like the time for that shift. We can feel that momentum for something different. What's your constituency like that you're running in? It's a uh, very rural. Uh, it's a big constituency. Uh, we actually moved out here about a year and a half ago. Previously, we were living in Belfast and we, you know, up sticks and went out to the countryside like many people did when relocating during the pandemic. And uh, it's a beautiful part of the country. Uh, tons of great spots for hiking and fishing. And it's very, uh, I suppose, you know, green and beautiful and mountainous. Um, but it does face considerable challenges because of its rural location and has historically been very um, undervalued, underinvested in, and really kind of forgotten about in terms of decision making at Stormont. So what are some of the constituency issues you're honing in on then that are kind of specific to where you are running? Well, rural imbalance is a significant issue right here. So, you know, um, a lot of the uh, areas in Fermanagh and South Tyrone are very rural, small villages, and they can't get access to things like public transport, uh, access to health services. And these are issues that are really impacting people's lives. And um, for me, rural regeneration is definitely being overlooked in this election and is something that we really need to prioritize and is a big uh, priority for me in terms of trying to increase access uh, in terms of public transport, green buses. Can we please, please have trains back in this constituency? Uh, they closed in 1957, and it's just abhorrent in terms of how you look at how the whole Northwest has been abandoned in terms of accessibility and connectivity to the rest of the island. And I think we're also missing a huge opportunity here um, as we begin to emerge from the pandemic, because people are reassessing where they want to live, are reassessing how they want to work. And in this constituency, there is a great opportunity to make it more attractive to young professionals in terms of relocating out here and then reinvesting and, and regenerating these rural communities, the key to doing that is going to be infrastructure and access and connectivity to be able to make it attractive. And that will also help us in terms of our climate targets as well. So there's just, there's so many benefits to really pushing the agenda of public transport, rural regeneration and connectivity, which is why it's a really big issue for me. Um, apart from the issues that are relevant to your constituency, what do you think are the broader issues uh, overall you think you represent or indeed want addressed uh, in these elections? 
Well, I think considering that next year we're all going to be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, um, and yet the vast majority of human rights protections under the agreement have not been implemented, is something that we really need to focus in on and is a, a big thing that I try to, to speak about, I suppose, is shifting that narrative away from saying, congratulations, well done, or oh, the Good Friday Agreement was such a roaring success, let's all pat ourselves on the back, to, well, at 25 years, do you think maybe we should probably look at implementing the Good Friday Agreement? You know, we have significant failures when it comes to the fact that we still don't have a Bill of Rights. We have failures around policing, around justice, around social housing, around uh, integrated education. The list is the length of your arm. So it really is um, a need to change that narrative around how do we be begin to deliver on a rights-based future. So my manifesto is actually framed around that context of a rights-based future. And since 1998, not just the Good Friday Agreement, but there's been seven subsequent agreements since 1998, and not one of these agreements has been fully implemented. So what usually happens is, you know, political representatives and leaders make a commitment and then they don't deliver on it and then they reword it and they put it into a subsequent agreement and it begins this cycle of denial of rights all over again. So for me, as someone who's already taken part of the Good Friday Agreement and pushed really hard to get some sort of progress on delivering on it, it's a big part of my priority in all of my work is to push for implementation of what's been agreed and delivering on that rights-based future. This election really feels like a, a kind of seismic one, even though the the reporting on it, um, both in the, in the South and, and elsewhere, is hasn't ramped up yet, I think. I think people will be kind of catching up with it uh, towards the end of the month. But why do you think this election is different to previous ones um, besides the the polling that's kind of signaling that Sinn Féin will get the most first preference votes? Yeah, I mean, we are seeing that, um, I suppose, that focus being on who's going to be first minister uh, or deputy first minister come May 5th. And look, you know, this year's election may very well see Sinn Féin become first minister, but it needs to be said that these are as a joint office, so they're the same in terms of the first minister and deputy first minister. Um, it's just a symbolic um, title. Um, but the real story here in this election is the rise of the others, as as they're referred to, um, which is the middle ground uh, in Northern Ireland. And we have seen over the last five years, significant shifts in terms of social and political attitudes in the North. So we're seeing an increasing amount of people that are not defining themselves as unionist or nationalist. We're seeing an increasing amount of people shifting in their identity too. So polls are indicating that more people identify as Irish or Northern Irish, particularly younger generations. And we've seen that borne out in some of the elections too. So if you look back to 2017 and 2019, both of these elections had a higher turnout in terms of voters and both were significantly damaging for unionism. So there's, I suppose, a bit of momentum behind the possibility that the middle ground is going to come out again in higher levels and are going to try and push forward for a more progressive result. And I think considering that um, the election strategy of political unionism is very fractured and we're seeing a sort of an, an old, tired argument of trying to go down sectarian lines and pushing the us versus them narrative from the DUP in particular. I think that might have a negative uh, ramification for the party in terms of how that turns out in the polls, because people are really tired of that kind of thinking. And in reality, people want to see delivery on the health service, on housing, on 
the cost of living crisis, and you know we're not seeing really any large-scale appetite for these symbolic arguments around identity or sovereignty or the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm. So it remains to be seen how that will be born out on May 5th. What other candidates are you looking to um, that you think fall into that that kind of category of of others or candidates like yourself that you're kind of in comms with during this uh, time? Well, I'm working with um, Ray McKim, who is running as an independent as well, and uh, Ben King in uh, Strangford, who's also running as an independent. Obviously, then there's Claire Sugden, who is uh, an incumbent independent in East Derry. So I've been speaking with uh, those who have similar values to myself in terms of uh, pushing for a rights-based future and not sort of aligning yourself down these outdated binary concepts of identity and political allegiances. Um, and then there's also a significant number of young candidates that are running, new candidates are, that are running. And I'm really hopeful that we're going to see a different kind of Stormont come May 5th, where a lot of these new voices are going to be able to push through and offer an alternative. Uh, you were talking about the symbolism of the first minister and the deputy first minister. Would it not be easier, to, because they're just symbolic roles and equal, to just have two first ministers? Yes, it would. Um, and if you go back to the well, basics the of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, you know, this was a St. Andrew's Agreement uh, alteration. Another point to make about the St. Andrew's Agreement is there was also a shift then in terms of the St. Andrew's veto. Um, and that actually really is used quite a lot to hinder progress on delivery of rights. And I think uh, in my manifesto, I do say that the St. Andrew's veto has to be removed and we have to go back to the Good Friday Agreement basics in terms of what was actually in there to protect rights. But this uh, issue around the first minister, deputy first minister, there was an amendment, I think, that was tried to be was tried to be pushed through um, to a bill recently in Westminster that was shot down around just changing it to join first minister. So, you know, but it makes sense, like, to remove that barrier and that narrative from the the discourse in the island. With that symbolism, then, do you think they're, like, playing such a big role there? But do you think there is progress being made, then, on people's political choices not being curtailed by adhering to purely nationalist or unionist identities? So it's kind of moving away from that. Yeah, I think so. Um, Certainly within younger generations, there is not this uh, attachment to, I suppose, political allegiances, political identities that we would have seen previously. And, and look, I'm an optimist. So, and I continue to be an optimist despite every election result that happens. Uh, and I'm, I'm holding on to that hope that there is going to be a significant shift in this next election. I think that um, we are seeing an increasing appetite for change uh, and uh, not the kind of change that parties all roll out in their slogans uh, for the election campaigns, but actual change that delivers for people. And certainly the response that I'm getting at the doors is people are delighted to see an independent running and see the value of independent voices because an independent voice in the assembly can dilute some of that toxic divisive political system that we have in place. And we've seen a rise of independence in other parts of the UK. Obviously, there's a great independent system and, and representation in the South as well. But we haven't seen that borne out in Northern politics just yet. And I'm hoping that this election is going to be the moment where there can be a rise of independent voices that will he- head into the Assembly and push for something a little different. Emma, thank you so much for um, kind of highlighting the story under the story. While everybody is still talking about Sinn Féin and DUP, there obviously is um uh, small earthquakes happening uh, under underneath that of which you were part uh, along with other um, independent and alternative voices. So running in Fermanagh, South Tyrone, thank you so much for, for joining us on our assembly series.
Thank you so much for having me. Andrea, what is getting in the sea? Okay. So, so stick with me, okay? <laughs> I feel very American today. Uh, on board Planola. That's it. That's that's the tweet. <laughs> they can get in the thing. But specifically, so this week on board Panola overruled a ban that prevented the sale of 524 homes being developed on public lands at O'Devney Gardens to institutional funds, which was reported by Killian Woods in the Sunday Business Post. Initially, uh, when this was all came up, councillors were presented with the option of selling the land to Bartra to be developed or leave it under undeveloped um, as the government uh, and council executive made it very clear there was no money for them to develop it so they had no choice um, which was and it was presented in a very binary fashion and a lot of councillors struggled um, so because of the struggle they're like like we can't just be giving public land away whatever they put in a caveat to the deal with Barcher that it would be made up of social and affordable housing and would not be sold to institutional investors so it would go to the people who were kicked out of O'Devney Gardens to allow for the redevelopment Um. So then on board Panala came along and lifted this ban because Bartra wrote to Minister O'Brien saying that if the housing uh, department didn't buy the houses, that they're going to sell them to uh, institutional investors. So there, huh? You better buy it. Um, And then, yeah, so then on board Panola came along and said, do you know what? That ban on selling it to institutional investors that our whole country seems to be taken up with now. Don't worry about it. It's grand. Just go for it. So personally, I think it's fair to say that it's time to disband on board Planola. A board of nine people have far too much control over ruling democracy and democratic decisions in Ireland. Well, there definitely needs to be a massive audit and inquiry of the decisions they've been making. By who? At the very least. I mean, the thing everybody... I suppose everybody who's watching that O'Davenny's thing happening quite like gimlet eyed with regards to Bartra's uh, rhetoric on it knew this was going to happen. And you're so right, Andrea, how it was pre- how it was presented as like, well, it's just this or nothing because Owen Murphy was a big, big um, uh, repeater of that rhetoric, of Bartra's rhetoric to councillors. He told councillors, there is no plan B. It's this or nothing. Now, how that comes to be is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and it's it's just, you know, I feel for the councillors who were kind of, they had their arms twisted into that decision because that's how it was made. But like, it is not enough for bad development to happen that people will not be able to avail of, that will not be affordable. That's That's just not enough for like just building. It has to be more than that. And um, it's it's really terrible what has happened in Odavani's and not surprising. And also in a similar vein, in Dundrum, Hammerson have, uh, have announced their plans for where the Dundrum Town Centre is. And as part of they have to offer a percentage of social housing and they've gone to the Council of Dunleary Ratdown with their offers of what the, what the prices are going to be for a three, two and one bedroom 
social and affordable home. And I think the one bedroom is 350,000 and then the two bed is 540. Nonsense. And like it's a complete shakedown. It's a total shakedown. Like people do not, I guess people do realize how dysfunctional things are, but like it is just, we are absolute mugs and the government is just being played and played and played and participating in this outrageousness that is basically now just seeing people have to walk away from the country that they grew up in because they can't afford like a one bedroom gaff. Um, something is going to happen. There's going to be some kind of breaking point. There will be some kind of catalyst moment and uh, things are going to get, things are going to get heightened, I think. What else is getting in the sea? You've got a really strange thing here that I haven't heard of at all. <laughs> So another getting in the sea. Uh, as, as our focus on tourism and making Ireland a great place for tourism, but for nowhere to live or to do anything, <laughs> um, Citizen M is a hotel chain. Um, and they are looking, they're looking to employ a Dublin culture scout. Um, and it's not built yet. It will be on Bride Street in Dublin 8, which is crying out for hotels <laughs> and uh, affordable hotels. And also the selling point of this Citizen M hotel is that you don't even have to talk to anyone because it's all uh, you check in on your phone. You use your phone as the key. You order your food and room service and any services you want through your phone. You never even have to talk to anyone. Cool. What pod life? Anyway, so uh, they're going in to Bride Street where we're crying out for hotels. Jesus Christ, I just saw a Premier Inn is opposite Teelings. That's, oh. that's a, like I was in Teelings, looked across. It's like Premier Inn, brilliant. If only there was one close by that had just taken over that beautiful building on Georgia Street. Oh, there is. Um, anyway, for a one-off fee of €3,000, you could be tasked with creating a list of Dublin's cultural gems for the hotel to tell its uh, uh, people staying there of what to do. I really feel we're, like... We're, we're so cultural. We know what's going on in Dublin, guys. We want to be part of your culture. Let us be part of it. By the way, we don't know anything and we need someone to do it for 3K. I would really like just everybody to apply for this job solely with made up recommendations. Just completely made up stuff. If if somebody can become this culture scout, which I've almost actually wretched in my mouth saying that term. <laughs> but like, um, and, uh, they're not going to use the, the recommendations. It's purely to look like they're part of the gang. Look, we like culture. We want to be part of your gang. We Gross. have a person from your from your from your area who's doing it. Look. Also, Citizen M sounds like a nineties documentary or the nineties kind of thriller on some kind of serial killer or something. Oh, I'm thinking of Citizen X. That's a really dark film. Um Anyway, I'm sure they're a lovely group of people in a lovely hotel. Stunning, but like piss off. Um, now it's time for it's bananas. Cade bananas. Uh, yeah, no, no. I am sure I've made this bananas before because it continues to be bananas in the year of our Lord, 2022. Uh, the taxis can decide if they want to take your card or not. And the reason I think this is most bananas is because I looked, I got, 
obviously it comes from a blah, 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 personal experience. I got a taxi, got home, uh, went to pay by card. Don't take card. Oh, okay. Well, we're at my house now, so I don't know what you want me to do about it. Um, especially because 64% of payments made in Ireland in 2020, so that's two years ago, pre-pandemic, uh, well, kind of mid-pandemic, where the whole government um, advice was use contactless payment, money is dirty, and I'm not against money. I think we it's very important that we don't live in a cashless society. I think we need to have a mix of the two, but I think you, if you are offering a service, you have to be willing to take uh, the payment form that most payments are made in our country with, um, and it's the main form of payment used. And it's absolutely bananas that we still have this, like, uh, I don't take card, and this unclear uh, kind of, I suppose, policy in terms of what you need to provide to be provide this public service. Um, oh. And like I, I tweeted it. Obviously, I had loads of like taxi jazz coming at me uh, saying uh, taxi drivers uh, can't put like loads of fees of be are on card payments and you don't understand that and other retailers can add that on and stuff it's like mm, that is not that's for everyone thing. that's for everyone has to pay card yeah. fees so anyway uh, but uh, as a side note M Ryan announced a new next generation ticketing scheme that will allow cards and contactless payments on all buses so even our buses are like moving with times come on taxi world get with the program now it's time for our fave bits. I'm excited about your fave bits this week, Andrea. Are you? Yeah, why not? Why not? Well, first up, oh my God, I went to the Saint Sister at the Olympia. And I think it might be my first gig I've been to, like a proper gig in a long time. It was absolutely magical. The two queens singing their beautiful hearts out. The stage was absolutely stunning. And the lighting, like, it was just so gorgeous. The And, like, whoever did their lighting design deserves an Oscar, I think. Uh, it was so beautiful. And it was such a beautiful concert. And, uh, yeah, it was really enjoyable. Fair play. Amazing. Um, there, I am also enjoying the Great Home Revival, uh, fronted by Hugh Wallace, the architect, and he goes around to uh, document houses being taken back or like dereliction being turned into homes. I think it's a good narrative to be focusing in on as we rage on with derelict Ireland, um, and rather than house porn, it is kind of more like how you can tor- turn dilapidated houses back around and like the one I watched was a big mill was stunning and the, the for the price they did it for like it was phenomenal it just shows you what you can do um, so yeah I'm really enjoying that I'm also really enjoying Brooklyn Beckham and Nicola Peltz got married at the weekend and their wedding is so glam and as we were talking about uh, fame and uh, the new fame being secrecy and privacy, like there's only been a photograph of the two of them uh, uh, really, well, a couple of photographs of like a few, a few little like tidbits 
I am foaming at the mouth to see what went on at that wedding. It had the most glam invitees, uh, loads of like just the outfits. Um, she is loaded. Um, her father is very, very rich. So there is like Valentino gowns all over the place. I just want to see it all. Uh, I just feel like, I mean, he's just a child to me, Brooklyn Beckham. A very good looking child. <laughs> He, the only thing I know about their relationship is that he got a letter she wrote him tattooed on his back. And oh. it's pretty Scarlito's way. Check it out. Oh, no, I don't want to. I, I'm living in my fantasy world because I, I actually didn't even know he was going out with anyone until. <laughs> but hooked. now you're all in. You're uh, all yeah. in. I've just seen the photographs on Vogue and I am hooked. Uh, the mother of the bride. Oh my God. Stunning. Oh, I'm obsessed. Um, and then great news. Brit Brit is pregnant. Is she actually though? I'm kind yeah. of confused. She is. So she thought it was a food baby, but she did the pregnancy test and she is now pregnant. And why is this great news? This is great news because during her uh, mad live at home and what's it called the Conser- conservatorship. conservatorship she wasn't allowed to take out her IUD so she kept talking about how she'd love to have more babies and with her husband but she wasn't allowed so since that conservatorship has been broken in November 2020 she has now gotten pregnant and we love to see it for her love Brittany yeah I'm just so delighted and like especially because imagine being told you had to keep something in your body that you didn't want it just bananas Bananas. Um, so my fave bits, those those are great fave bits, Andrea. Thank you. Um, so you know the way, well, I'm not so much obsessed with driving and race car activities <laughs> and competitions as I am about documentaries on them. Yes. Um, so obviously Drive to Survive, obviously the excellent documentary series, Fast and the Furious. <laughs> <laughs> Drive to Survive has um, really gone mainstream like my sister and her friends are all watching it and they're like yeah I love it it's like what this is mad well my latest one is uh, Race Bubba Wallace which is a documentary series on the NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace Um, so yeah I'm getting into NASCAR vibes I suppose NASCAR is like good to watch because people just crash all the time so it's very like dramatic but also yeah that's you don't it's not good to watch crashes either no but you know what I mean like that's why people watch it like a lot of the time because it's just like exciting kind of you know football in the groin kind of you know activity I am very disturbed by that okay anyway Bubba Wallace is the only black driver driving at his level in the NASCAR Cup Series NASCAR is traditionally a very Deep South white sport um, that has like loads of crazy problems around racism, white supremacy with regards to flying the Confederate flag and people generally being absolute gobshites uh, to black drivers. So it is very interesting to see his trajectory through that sport. My other fave bits, um, Secrets from the Middle Isle, a documentary on the RTE player about Little during the pandemic, Little on Moore Street and Little on Tipperary and about how they all coped. Like I was, I saw an ad for it, but I had it on mute 
I was like, what? What's, what's it about? Well, it's just about like the basically how like obviously Little and Aldi have become such massive um, forces with regards to retail in Ireland. So it's about how people work in them, what they're all about, and then the impact on other stores and stuff. And basically then how people, how the, how the supermarkets function during the pandemic. It's just one of those like nice RTE documentaries, you know, that you get yeah. into the characters working in places, into yeah. it. The new and final season of Dairy Girls starts this week. And my final fave bit is the reason that my voice is gone. (laughs) Just the wedding I was at a diggle at the weekend. Shout out to Molly and Mary. Uh, An extraordinary DJ lineup for a wedding. It was uh, an absolute blast. So that was definitely my fave bit. Just like I know everybody has 50 million weddings to go to this week, this year, because everything was postponed uh, with the pandemic but you know sometimes a good wedding with a good crowd and good tunes and you know there's nothing like it there's nothing like it and there was like so many weddings I feel like this was the weekend that kicked off wedding season in Ireland Kelly Harrington Kelly Harrington got married uh Joe who works for me her sister there you go. I mean, three's a trend, Andrea. No, there was way more. Who else? I'm not going to name them all. Brooklyn Beckham. Brooklyn Beckham. <laughs> love is all around. I love it. Now love, it's, love. Now it's time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week. So my book of the week this week um, is the play, uh, Slave Play by Jeremy O'Harris. Um, Philly McMahon lent this to me to read because I was kind of obsessing over Jeremy O'Harris, who also co-wrote uh, the film Zola, which is also great. Um, and this was a play that started, he wrote it when he was in college and it kind of started off Broadway and then became this like huge kind of cultural phenomenon, was nominated for it was nominated for 12 Tonys, but I don't think it won any. It has caused some controversy because of its themes around slavery and sexual politics and sexual legacies and stuff like that. But it is just good. And sometimes, you know, we need to take a break from nonfiction or novel or things like that. It's always good to read a sh- short little play. Um, short books are a jam when you're taking a break between big books, I find. Between the big books. Um, so yeah, Slave by Jeremy O'Harris. Haven't seen it in production, but reading it is fun. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan. Crystal Clear gave us his tune chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design. Hit me with the TCR of this week, Andrea. This week's tune chicken roll is Robin, Indestructible. Like, not new song, but the new song to me is the A-Track remix, which is an absolute bop. Excellent. I've been Una Mullally. I've been Andrew Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was The New Candidates, a.k.a. The Others. (laughs) 